turns out there's something to be said about enjoying a quiet life in a former world empire, like Austria. I actually enjoy living in a country that is not so internationally famous and uh, known all over the world. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we look at strolling Vienna like a local. We'll also hear why it's fun to be part of the first wave of tourists to visit Albania, where you can make a real splash just by showing up. Many of them regard their country as you know, something of a ruin. They're fascinated that people should be coming and taking an interest in it, and they're absolutely thrilled to bits that you're there. Edge is a little rough, yeah, but that's part of the charm. Europeans share the benefits of being able to relocate across former borders. I've got this Scottish accent, but I've always felt like a European. And my high school travel buddy shares memories of our first trip on our own to Europe. Mona Lisa, that knocked my socks off. Rediscover the old world in a new light in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Despite all the political wrangling that national interests and economic hardships might bring to the table, I see the Europe of today as a persistent and creative attempt to find ways to let its citizens work together to enjoy the good life. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear how EU residents are enjoying the freedom to reinvent themselves across national borders. We'll also be escorted around the casual elegance of Vienna. And I'll share memories of the first trip I took to Europe as a wide-eyed teenager without my parents. Let's start with a corner of Europe that still feels undiscovered. Our first guests today are excited to recommend a visit to Albania. They're eager to share the old-world atmosphere they encountered there, and they tell us that the raw, enthusiastic welcome you'll receive has not been rehearsed for a steady stream of tourists. As a country still emerging from its communist-era isolation, Albania is showing up on a lot of go-now-before-it-changes travel lists. Ben Curtis teaches political science at Seattle University with an emphasis on Southeast European studies. Ben also leads tours in the Balkans, and he's the author of The Habsburgs, History of the Dynasty, and The Traveler's History of Croatia. David Willett is a full-time tour guide who co-authored The Lonely Planet Greece Guides. David's just recently led a group through Albania after several visits in recent years. Ben and David, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Rick. Thanks, Rick. So, Ben, you just uh, we were just in Albania. Lonely Planet called it perhaps the number one new destination, you know. Uh, what is it about Albania that would make it worth all of us paying attention to? For me, it was one of these sort of blank spots on the map, having been so many places in Europe, and yet here is Albania sort of shrouded in, in myths, mysteries, uh, stereotypes, you know, like the explorers of old, I guess, I wanted to go uncover it. And Edge is a little rough, yeah, but that's part of the charm. One of the things that's great about it being undiscovered from a tourist point of view is, in my experience, people there are actually happy to see tourists. Hmm. I think of it in comparison to, you know, Paris or Prague, where people might be more jaded about, oh, great, another busload. But here, a busload shows up, oh, welcome to Albania. It's almost a, a code of honor to be hospitable to foreigners venturing into your town in Albania. It's true, and that's that goes back hundreds of years. It's deep in the culture to treat guests like royalty, they say sometimes. And I was flabbergasted at how much that old tradition still holds, even with young people, that Hmm. people would come up to me and offer help, and they actually wanted to practice English, and how often does that happen in Western European countries anymore? It sounds wonderful. Now, just a generation ago, it was considered like the last remnant of Stalinism, and they had an incredible, bizarre dictator, and tourism was just unthinkable. Ben Curtis, what are the nitty-gritty kind of uh, hurdles, visas, language barrier, how expensive it is, and so on? Yeah, visas for uh, most Western countries, U.S., Australia, Canada, Western Europe, nothing. You, you just, just cross, cross the, border. the border. Yeah, costs are quite low. You can get a decent hotel room for 25 euros a night. About 30 or $35, then yeah. that's pretty good. Food also very reasonable. And a warm welcome. And a warm welcome. And no tourist crowds. Yeah, exactly. And all sorts of funky remnants of communism. <laughs> and that's something that I love, yeah. We'll talk about that in just a minute. David Willett, you're going back with a group of friends What's your itinerary? If, if you're going to Albania, it's a small country. Uh, what is it, the size of Maryland, something like that, and uh, just 45 miles east of Italy, and you can go there from Greece or from Montenegro. What would your itinerary be if you're taking your friends to Albania? Or you can go there from uh, the Republic of Macedonia, which is where I'm going to approach it from, from Lake Ocrid, which is on the border between Albania and the Republic of Macedonia. Which is a good place in its own right. It's a beautiful place. Right. It's, a, it's a World Heritage Site mainly because its role in uh, establishing Christianity amongst the Slavs. But uh, the reason I'm going, I'm looking at the World Heritage Sites in the south of Albania because very conveniently for 
anyone running a tour, all the main sites, the World Heritage Sites, and there's three of them, are close together in southern Albania. Three World Heritage Sites in a little humble country the size of Maryland. Yes. What are those? There's Barat, the town with a thousand windows, Girocasta, the town with a thousand steps, and Butrint, which is a wonderful site that dates back to the 7th century B.C. Now, my town has a thousand steps and a thousand windows, and we're not a World Heritage Site. You need to be a little bit older than that. Okay, so what is it about those steps and those windows? Uh, They're regarded as the finest surviving examples of Ottoman-era architecture, and that's what took me there in the first place. I I love funky architecture. And that's the unique thing about Yugoslavia. It had that Ottoman uh, heritage where you've got these Muslim little um, islands of, of Islam, really. Well, you're not so aware of the Islam because for a long time Albania was an atheist state and many right. people remain true to that. But the Ottoman heritage. I yes, think. the Ottoman heritage is, right. is most certainly there and uh, it's beautiful, particularly at Girocaster. We're finding out how lifelong education is actually a lot of fun today on Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by David Willett and Ben Curtis and we're learning about Albania. Our phone number is 877-333-7425 and William's on the line in Miami, Florida. William, thanks for your call. Hi. Uh, what uh, what languages between French and German would come in handiest uh, in Albania? Neither of them would come in particularly handy. The languages that are handy, well, Italian, especially in the south of Albania, and a lot of people speak English these days, plus Greek. Yeah, Italian uh, is your best bet, I think, besides I, English. I would think since they've been a free society, English has been the focus of their education. Especially among the young people. Young yeah. people. So if you find young people or people in tourism, I would imagine, William, that your English is your best uh, language in Albania. Okay, well, my question is about, I'm very interested in Byzantine art. I was wondering if, the, if they have, uh, you know, the, the regular icons and things like that. Uh, were those destroyed during the communist days? And do they have museums to see them? And do you have to go and find churches if those still exist? churches still exist, but the best place to see them, I think, is the museum in Barat, in the Barat Castle, where they have a wonderful collection of Byzantine icons. And also the National Museum in Tirana has a whole room, a big room actually, dedicated to some of the old uh, icon traditions. So Hmm. those two places are really where you want to go and see them. And Tirana is the the, the capital. Is the capital, the big Mm -hmm. city. And that's where the center of the infrastructure would be for transportation and everything. Yeah. But they do have, still have the actual uh, icons and things like that. The communists did not destroy them. There are some. In the uh, Onofri Museum in Barat, there's a wonderful collection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that one's actually really impressive. So yeah. the, the churches probably took a hit during the, the Stalinist period, but uh, the art survives in museums these days. Weren't they Maoist instead of Stalinist, though? Well, both. I mean, yeah, Hoxha was one of these very rare <laughs> communist dictators who uh, aligned himself with Mao, but they had their sort of Stalinist period, too, so... Can you find a lot of the old communist, you know, kish and stuff like you can buy in, like, the eastern part of Berlin or uh, the swap markets in Prague? I didn't see much. If you go into the the antiquity sort of shops or the antiques, you might be able to find some of that stuff. But I'm a person who is a minority of maybe one uh, in the world who actually loves that old, terrible communist architecture. And so Tirana, the capital, which most people, if you travel to Albania, you'll probably end up passing through Tirana anyway because it is the transportation hub, as Rick noted. Tirana has some of the fantastically awfulest communist architecture I've ever seen. So that's reason in itself for spending a day there. But Ben, talk about the the bunkers. I understand there's like 700,000 of these uh, air raid shelters. Right, yeah. This was part of the communist paranoia of of the Hojha regime that ruled Albania during the communist period, where they feared invasion from the imperialistic West at any moment. And so they directed the uh, citizenry of Albania to build these concrete bunkers out in fields and on roads and in the middle of nowhere. And so they still dot the landscape. And um, some of them are decrepit and forgotten. Some of them have been painted nice colors. Some of them are used now as like um, stalls for cows and goats. And so they dot the landscape and it is this really weird Mm. trademark of Albania. And they're probably just too herky and concrete and rebar to, to chip away and destroy so they just survive. Exactly, yeah. All right, William, thanks for your call. Thanks a lot. It may be the Balkan country that time and tourists have overlooked, until recently. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, our guides are enthusiastic about Albania. We're joined by David Willett and Ben Curtis. Donna is calling in from Yakima in Washington. Hi, Donna. Hi, Rick. Um, I I drove through uh, Europe in uh, the summer of 2010, and Albania was one of the countries that we drove through, and we really enjoyed it because we didn't see tourists. Uh, we 
pretty much had the place to ourselves, and I found it very enjoyable. It was relatively inexpensive. We enjoyed uh, Giro Castra and also Berat. Uh, those are two cities that we stayed in. B-E-R-A-T, Berat. That sounds like a great spot. And Donna, were you impressed by the just the, the scenic wonders or any natural sightseeing? enjoyed the castle. Uh, that was really nice. And also, yes, the mountains, the wide open spaces. It, it was beautiful. Yeah. We were in the mountainous area mostly. David Willett, uh, I understand there's 14 national parks in Albania. What was your impression for the, of the natural wonders compared to other places you might go? I've never been anywhere more mountainous in my life. Our caller was just talking about some mountains. I didn't see anything other than mountains. <laughs> So it's a rugged terrain. It's a very, very rugged. that's why the Albanians were so isolated. It's the land of the eagle. Flying is the best way to get around. <laughs> Donna, thanks for your call. Thank you. Wow, I've got to put Albania on my list. And, you know, it's, it's appealing for its natural wonders. As David said, nothing but mountains. It's got some appeal for its, the remnants of its communist nightmare. And it's got some natural heritage sites and some historical heritage sites and Ottoman heritage and so on. But really, it sounds like the people is a, a surprise bonus of going to Albania. Albanians are still absolutely thrilled to bits that anyone should want to go and look at their country because, I mean, they regard, many of them regard their country as something of a ruin. They're fascinated that people should be coming and taking an interest in it. And they're absolutely thrilled to bits that you're there. Uh, So That's a huge bonus for anybody planning a trip there. I found it really very difficult to spend any time by myself because you'd go into a cafe and sit down and before you knew it, there would be people coming over and wanting to know, where are you from? What are you doing here? Do you like it? And when you say yes, a huge smile comes across their face because, uh, you know, they find it hard to believe that anyone would find their country interesting because they've been suppressed for so long. And uh, I think it's very rewarding going to a place that's opening up like that because you are something new. You're not just another tourist, as Ben mentioned earlier. And you're talking to these wonderful people, these warm people, and they've got some uh, quirky cultural differences. I I understand, like in Bulgaria, they shake their head... uh, no for yes or something like this? Did yes, you know it can that? be very, it can be rather disconcerting at first, but... Uh, Somebody shakes their head no and that means yes? And, and then they dress up uh, quite formal when they go out? They do, the, the men in particular. Yeah, and you can actually see the men put on their suits and parade every evening. Don't forget that Albania is very, very mountainous. It may be kind of forgotten, it seemed like a backwater, but it's also a Mediterranean country. And so there's these Mediterranean customs that will remind you of Italy or Spain. And one of them is the Giro, which they do. It's the evening walk. Everybody heads out. Everybody dresses up. I mean, I remember in the beautiful town of Berat that all the kids, all the teenagers are out. They've all put every conceivable kind of gunk in their hair and put on their best clothes, and they're out to see and be seen. And that's what people do. That's how you go talk to your neighbors. It's just an incredibly vibrant, beautiful cultural custom, which is absolutely alive today, and it's just amazing. David Willett, Ben Curtis, thanks so much. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, Rick. A stroll through the relaxed refinement of Vienna, what it means to live as a borderless European, and memories of the first time I slummed through Europe on my own with my high school travel buddy. That's all still ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. My name is Holger Zimmer and I have a Zungenbrecher. I got a tongue twister for you in German. Acht alte Ameisen aßen am Abend Ananas. Which just basically means, very sweetly, eight aged ants were eating pineapple in the evening. Acht alte Ameisen aßen am Abend Ananas. But you must not bring me any more pineapples to you here. It's not proper. It's a gift a young man might present to his lady love. 
It makes me blush. I am overwhelmed. Vienna was built to be the glorious head of a vast and mighty Habsburg Empire. But ever since the Austro-Hungarian Empire lost World War I and fell, you could say it's a head without a body. Vienna is a grand capital, but it's ruling a small, landlocked country. But the Viennese have still dedicated themselves to the art of living life well. Compared to most European capitals, the pace of life is slower. There are no skyscrapers, and classical music is everywhere. And the refinements of the glory days of Vienna back in the 18th and 19th century have not lost their luster. Helping us to arrange a suitably aristocratic walk around Vienna is Austrian tour guide Andrea Wolf. Andrea, thanks for joining us on Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you for having me. When I say that Vienna is a head without a body, of course, formerly ruling this vast Habsburg empire, how does that show itself in Vienna? Well, if you go to Vienna, you see all those uh, magnificent buildings, the architecture, the richness of that vast empire that Austria used to be until 100 years ago. Of course, today Austria is just a very small country and the power of the pastimes is long gone. Now, you've lived all your life in Austria and at one time Vienna was the competitor of Paris, sort of the, the powerhouse in the east. But now you're no longer a superpower. Is that kind of a blessing? Because the Austrians are very good at just enjoying life. I'm fine with that. I wouldn't want to fight to get back to the status that we lost 100 years ago. So I actually enjoy living in a country that is not so internationally famous and uh, known all over the world because I don't think a lot of people know what's going on in Austria politically, and that's okay. It's kind of nice after a crazy history with 600 years of Habsburgs. And Austria just knows how to, it's almost like every afternoon is a Sunday afternoon. People are out strolling, enjoying beautiful coffee houses, beautiful music, beautiful chocolate. Yes. Free time is actually very high value in Austria, I think. And if you do have a free afternoon, uh, you would want to be out and about, meet friends, uh, maybe go shopping, but especially go to the coffee house. Now, there's a particular word in Austria, uh, Gemütlichkeit. Gemütlichkeit. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? I actually use the adjective more often, gemütlich, uh-huh. so comfy, cozy, and it's very important. If something is not gemütlich, it fails. Nobody wants to have it. Like a house can be gemütlich, uh, a work environment can be gemütlich, a coffee house, uh, a restaurant. A restaurant. So you can find a, a what is the word, Beisel, a Beisel? Beisel or a, a Gasthaus. A Beisel is a very low-key restaurant where you can get basic food. Uh, you don't have to dress up or something. You don't make a reservation. You just show up. You can also just have a drink there. And it's gemütlich. And it is gemütlich. If it's good. It's usually good. <laughs> That's a good word to know, gemütlich, when we're traveling in Austria. I'm joined by Andrea Wolf. We're talking about Vienna. It's interesting, when you look at the street map of Vienna, you can actually see its medieval fortifications in the street map. Can you explain that? Well, you have the Ringstraße that uh, goes around the city center, the first district, that Ringstraße is, um, now you have all those beautiful buildings like the city hall and the opera house mm-hmm. and the museums. But uh, until 150 years ago, there was the city wall that mm-hmm. enclosed this, the first district as a fortification of the city. You know, that's interesting. All over Europe, a city will need a wall in the Middle Ages, and they'll have a huge wall. And then in modern times, the city grows bigger. Uh, there's less chaos. They don't need the wall anymore. And this big thing is embedded in a congested, bigger city. Obviously, tear down the wall, you have a circular boulevard. In Vienna, they tore down the wall and they made this grand boulevard lined with important buildings. Actually, if you do hop on a tram in Vienna, you can see all the buildings. You just drive right by the the opera house, the city hall, the natural history museum. You would see the Hofburg, the palace of the Habsburgs. So just get on that tram, tram number one or number two, and go all the way around the circle. You have to switch once, but it's very easy. You can uh, do it on your own as often as you want. And when we're in Vienna, it's very safe and comfortable to walk about. Let's take a walking tour, Andrea. Uh, Let's start, we'll start at the opera house. When you think of the opera house in Vienna, of course, opera is so important to the Austrian culture and, and people love music. When you see your opera house, what does it mean to you? I actually become more and more proud of the opera house every time I see it because um, I've been in there a couple of times, more than a couple of times. But I I think it's great that uh, they have an opera every night. 
there's always a reserved 400 standing room tickets that anybody can line up for. It's usually students, but maybe also tourists that didn't plan ahead of time and they just want to get a last-minute ticket. And how much do these cost? They cost either 3 or 4 euro, depending on So about $5 on which... to go to the opera in Vienna. And you're, you're, exactly. you're seeing the greatest opera in the world, arguably, for 5 bucks. You see the opera from inside, you see the best musicians, you see all the star singers and uh, the orchestra, And of the course. trick is to get a standing room spot, and that's quite easy to do if, if you know how... And then uh, you mentioned there's an opera every night, but they're not the same opera, right? No, so you can stay for a week and see a different performance every evening, actually. It's a bit scary. Uh-huh. You can go to the opera every night, so you do the calculation. Wow. Of 25 bucks. Now, that's a lot of work to be changing the sets and everything and to be running all these operas uh, on successive nights, different operas. Different operas, and in the afternoon, they also have to practice for different operas that are not running the same night. So they, the stage changes a lot So it's a cauldron of activity, and in spite of all that busyness, they let the tourist tour, and they'll take beautiful tours of the inside of the opera house when possible. You can also do a tour of the opera, and um, they will explain to you, maybe even uh, go backstage. Mm-hmm. I prefer the opera itself when it's working, and even just have a glass of and, wine. And with these $5 tickets, you can hop in, and, and you don't even need to stay the whole time. You're standing up there on the railing, looking from the high level down, and you can stay for an hour or two and then head out if you like. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Andrea Wolf, who's a guide in Austria. We're talking about the capital city of Austria, Vienna, and the passion Vienna has for culture. And I believe that Vienna actually works to make high culture, the opera, the symphony, available to everybody, to be accessible. They will broadcast when the opera is sold out. They'll broadcast it live on a big screen outside of the opera. And talk about the big uh, music festival they have at the Rathaus, the city hall. That's actually very interesting because in summer they put up big screens and it's also all free. It usually starts after sunset, so it has to be dark. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not just opera. They also play rock concerts. I think mm-hmm. last time I was in Vienna they played Pearl Jam and uh, it doesn't have to be classical music. So it's just, it's uh, a, entertainment. Um, entertainment. And there's a massive screen and a couple thousand chairs and it's uh, in the park that surrounds the big towering city hall. And there's must be 50 different little restaurants serving all sorts of different food. It's quite a spectacle for, for anybody who wants to connect with a lot of other people. Oh, yeah. I would recommend that because, first of all, you can try traditional food, even if it's just mm, sausage from a sausage stand. But uh, that's interesting, too. Grab a drink, and it's free. It's only in summer, though. Katie's on the phone from Eden Prairie, Minnesota. First book. <laughs> It's been uh, 40 years since I was in Vienna as a student, and one of my favorite memories is at the Rod's Keller. We had a dinner there and then a concert in the plaza. And that's why it was good to know about the opera at $5 a night. I'm curious about other music opportunities, music and dinner, or just uh, concerts by themselves. I know the tickets are uh, more than $5, But how does one go about uh, doing that? Uh, Should I arrange tickets here from the United States? I have a friend in Berlin who, if that's any advantage, just how might I go about choosing or can you just get in a line? Andrea, what is good advice for Katie if if you want to get a ticket affordably for some quality music in Vienna? I wouldn't necessarily buy it ahead of time. You can take it easy. There are so many different venues. You can even, um, like in the Hofburg, in the Habsburg Palace, they have every night there's a concert. Um, oh, and the, the High Mass at the Augustiner Church. On a Sunday morning, you can go to the High Mass, 11 o'clock, come early, because the seats, they don't sell out, they're free. You actually don't only give a donation at the end, but it's an, a beautiful choir. That would be a musical experience. Or if you want to see the Vienna Boys Choir, they also sing in a church uh, on Sunday morning. On one Sunday morning, I was able to see, go to the Mass at, is it called the Augustiner Kirche? Yes. The, the big church at the palace, the Hofburg Palace. That was free, and there's an orchestra playing, and it was just an amazing experience. And then I popped into the um, Hofkapelle, the, the Hofkapelle. Hofkapelle, where the boys' choir plays. And, and boys' choir seats for the, for the Mass there are taken long in advance, but you can go into the narthex of the church and... Nobody gets to see the boys' choir when they sing because they're up in the loft behind you, and you can hear and you can sort of feel like you're there, even though you're standing out in the lobby and be listening to the live performance of the Vienna Boys' Choir if you happen to be in Vienna on a Sunday morning. That would be a fabulous experience. It really is. Andrea? Uh, and, and the other concerts, I mean, there's, I don't know, any hotel in Vienna that wouldn't be uh, happy to book the tickets short-term mm-hmm. for you because I... You can always choose on site maybe uh, what, what you prefer. Do you prefer waltzer? Do you prefer 
Mozart. Lots going on. I would remind you, Katie, there are a lot of guys dressed up like Vivaldi out in the squares with their powdered wigs trying to sell you touristic concerts. And there's two kinds of concerts, really. There's touristy concerts, and they're fun, but they're with musicians in leotards. And then there are serious concerts. And you have to be careful which concert you decide to go to, depending on what your taste is. I would rely on the hotel well, more. yeah, I don't want to just hear the sound of music again. <laughs> That's good. Okay, Katie, thanks for your call. Ah, vielen Dank. And uh, Andrea, Katie, uh, welcomed you with a Grußgott. That's typically Austrian greeting. What is that? Grußgott, greet God. That is uh, actually how you recognize the Austrians apart from the Germans. But also, it's also common in Bavaria. Bavarians also say Grußgott as that, a is hello. Is that so? A, a greetings to God, or, or God's greetings, or God is great, or what? What does that mean? Grußgott. Greet God. Greet God. I so, greet God. And Justin is calling from Duval in Washington. Justin, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure speaking with you both, Rick and Andrea. My family is traveling to Vienna, and we're looking for some fun and interesting activities for a middle schooler. I would uh, maybe go to the Nash Market. Nash Market is an mm-hmm. um, open-air produce market. It's very long. It's a, one stre- a long stretch of uh, market stands where you find ethnic food, uh, olives, spices, teas, whatever you're looking for. I think there's a lot of different food types, and it's fun to look at. If you're traveling with little kids, I think one of the fun things would be to rent a bicycle. And this is great. In right downtown Vienna, you can rent a bicycle, and in moments you're across the river and uh, out um, on the Danube. Yeah, the Danube Island is actually a very nice place to bicycle because there are no cars. You get nice views. It's uh, quiet out there. If you are there on a weekend, uh, you might... uh, See all the people uh, barbecuing. Justin, that is the best idea. This It's a man-made island. It's very long and skinny. It's a park, and it's where the Viennese families are hanging out, and people are having barbecues, kids are playing, and it's idyllic. There's no traffic, so if you're on a bicycle there, it's just perfect. Well, that that's great. My, my son really likes to bicycle, and I, I think we'll take you up on that one. Have Thank a good you. time, Justin. Thanks for your call. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Andrea Wolf, an Austrian tour guide about Vienna. Andrea, we're walking through Vienna, and from the opera house, we head down towards the cathedral, and we come to Kaisersgruft. I don't know if Justin would want to go there with his middle schoolers, but uh, the Kaisersgruft is one of the most historic cemeteries or or crypts anywhere in Europe. You go downstairs and and tell us what you find. Well, you see all the Habsburg family members that uh, are not with us anymore, but they've passed away over the last uh, centuries. So Maria Theresa, so Maria Theresia, Joseph II, but also Sisi, the Empress Sisi. Yeah. And it's for me, it's, um, it's a bit of a creepy place, but then the Viennese ha- are said to have that connection with death, like they integrate death into life or life into death, however you want to see it. And you see that the difference between the coffin of Maria Theresia, which is a very huge monument, actually, and her sons, Joseph II, the enlightened emperor, just a very basic, uh, simple, a simple, simple coffin. coffin yeah. uh, the biggest contrast you could imagine. So you can read a lot of history and, and art trends and social trends into the styles of the coffins right. of the Habsburg centuries, literally centuries of Habsburg tombs. And you can actually measure who's more popular today with the populace by which tombs have more flowers on them. That's always Sissi. It's always Elizabeth, Sissi. Always so Sissi. She's sort of like Princess Diana. Exactly. I mean, think about Princess Diana for the English. For the Austrians, it's Empress Sissi. Now, when we go from the, we walk further downtown, we pass the emperor's tombs and, and we get to the Stevensplatz. And here we have a great uh, cathedral, Stevens Cathedral. And around Stevensplatz, there's a pedestrian street called the Graben, which has a lot of history. What does Graben mean? Graben means uh, molt or ditch. Vienna was a Roman settlement, a military settlement. At a certain point, they filled up the molt and uh, built houses on it. So this was a moat? Yes. So like a ditch, literally the ditch. Yes. Okay, and we have a, a monument there to the plague. Which exactly. Is quite striking. Which is very, very tall. You can't miss it, the plague monument, with a statue of one of the Habsburg emperors and where you can see what the Habsburg emperors were famous for. Their lower lip is sticking out. Okay, Actually, their like jaw a, is sticking out. A big underbite. Is that because they were marrying their cousins and a little bit deformed? Most probably, yes. So that was a family trait. Yes. And they showed it in the statue. Now, nearby, just a, about a block away, is my favorite place for a, a simple lunch, a famous sandwich shop. Oh, yeah, that's, um, there is a very famous place called Treszniewski. The name doesn't sound very German. Uh, it sounds more Polish. It has been around since a long time. You would go there for a um, quick bite. and Little, tiny uh, open-faced sandwiches. Open-faced sandwiches, um, similar to it, the Italian tramezzini. Mm-hmm. So it's, but it's, uh, it's got a, more of a 
full cornbread or rye or, or a healthier, healthier version, dark bread, and a lot of variety, freshly prepared, and you would just uh, grab whatever you want. You choose. There's not much sitting. There's no big seating area. You would stand up and uh, have a quick bite and drink typically a glass of wine with it. Just talking about buffet Trzniewski, and that is not a very German name, but it is a reminder of the multi-ethnic heritage of the Habsburg Empire. That is true. And I mean, especially in Vienna, if you look at the phone book, most of the names do not sound German at all. They have a Polish or a Czech or Slovakian mm. roots. And that all goes back to more than 100 years ago when all the immigrants from the poor crown lands came to Vienna to build those monuments on the Ringstrasse, for example. And actually, we forget oftentimes, but 100 years ago, Vienna was the capital of a vast empire and German speakers were actually in the minority. That's true. In that empire, for sure. Mm-hmm. In the Habsburg Empire. And, of course, today, after World War I, they, they, they lost World War I. They lost their international empire. The Habsburgs were thrown out in 1918, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, today we have the, uh, the remnants of that still surviving culturally. Andrea, let's finish off with just a mention about the coffee house culture, because no visit to Vienna is, is complete without not only having a cup of coffee, a good cup of coffee, but understanding what this coffee culture means to the Viennese and how we can enjoy it as visitors. It does mean a lot. You should definitely go to one of the the famous coffee houses uh, if you want to have the real experience. That means male waiters only, only male waiters in a real coffee house. Uh, Mm. The waiters should be a little bit arrogant, if not grumpy. That's also part of the experience. And uh, you need to call them if you want to order. Oh, so, so if will, you're a tourist sitting there, you'll never get any service? No, you can sit there for an hour probably and then so leave you got, again. you've got but grumpy male waiters and you've got to be aggressive to get their attention. Then if you have their attention, uh, they will ask you what you would like to order. You order uh, the coffee the way you want it. It can be a little coffee, a kleiner brauner, a small espresso with milk, or it can be a melange, which would be the Austrian version of a cappuccino. So with froth milk. And the beautiful thing about a coffee shop is you've got the neighborhood there. You've got newspapers scattered around. You can take all the time you want. The table is yours. Nobody will sit with you, and nobody is expecting you to ask whether you can join them, so don't do that. Just take your own table. There are have usually 50, 60 international newspapers, so you can read the whole morning. It's, like, the it's almost like an extent. Let's pretend you lived in a very small apartment nearby. This would be your, your place to stretch out and have the newspaper and have a coffee. It's an elegant part of the, life in Vienna. The extended living room, that's what it was uh, mm-hmm. because people did have much smaller apartments, of course, in the past. And it was also a meeting place for writers, philosophers, artists. And there's one very famous coffee house uh, that I really like. It's a bit run down, but it's called the Café Havelka. Mm. The owners, they opened that Café Havelka about 1930s, more or less, 1936, I think. I remember seeing Mr. Havelka. He was 99, mm. and he was still standing there and greeting his customers. Andrea Wolf, there is so much to see and do in Vienna. Thanks so much for giving us a little insight into the capital of your beautiful country, Vienna, the capital you. of Austria. Thank you. We'll look at how mobility is an important aspect of being a citizen of the European Union. Plus... Memories of that first trip to Europe after high school, vagabonding without mom and dad. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. The European Union has made it a lot easier in recent years for residents to relocate and reinvent themselves in another EU member country. Whatever reasons you might have for moving away from where you were born, if you're a European resident, you have lots of choices for changing what kind of scene you want to live in. Joining us now on Travel with Rick Steves with their own stories of making a new life outside their home countries are Trisha Brady and Susanna Parakini. Tricia originally comes from Scotland, and she now lives in a restored farmhouse she bought in the rural La Marque region of Italy. Susanna was raised in northeast Italy. She lived in Rome for a while, and a few years ago, she relocated to Madrid in Spain. Susanna and Tricia, it's great to have you with us. Thank Thank you. you It's nice to be here. You're both Europeans, and I've noticed this trend. Europeans, it's almost unlikely these days to find a European who's living where they were raised. In the old days, that was a big thing. You stayed in your community. How has the European Union made it easier for Europeans to be raised in one country and eventually settle in another? Tricia? Well, you have a choice, which is nice. So I work in Italy. I work for an American company, and I'm paid in Britain. 
So I can choose where I pay my taxes. And so I choose to get away from the bureaucracy of Italy and I pay my taxes in Britain. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So you're enjoying the best of both worlds. You're living in Italy, but trying to avoid the bureaucracy of Italy. So you're a taxpayer yes. in Britain. Yeah. Susanna, how about you? How has the European Union enabled you to uh, decide you want to live in Spain instead of Italy? Well, you know, I think not only for me, I didn't go to university, but many of my friends, they had the, the possibility to, after or in between, finishing the university to go and spend, let's say, three months, six months, nine months abroad in one of the many European countries. And we had this program that I think is still on, which is called Erasmus. You might be familiar with that. Right. So it was subsidized by the government, well, actually by the uh, the European community. And many of my friends had that experience. It doesn't mean that many of them, all of them, ended up living in that country, whatever it was, but at least they improved the language or they decided to try again and have more possibilities job-wise. Or to just simply better understand the other communities in the European Union. Absolutely. So the European government, even in tough economic times, continues to fund young people to study in foreign countries. This is this Erasmus program. Why did you decide to change from Italy to Spain? Well, you know, for me, the weather has always been very important. And everybody knows that we are pretty lucky in Italy because we have nice weather, generally speaking. And uh, um, several of my good friends, they were living or they lived a chunk of their times in UK or in Scotland, which I love. But, you know, weather-wise, it was terrible. So I've been there several times. And I said, no way. I mean, it must be closer to my heart. So I decided to go to Spain. So you went to Spain. How is Spain better than Italy for you? I think that it for me it's better because, you know, whatever happens in Spain, they make lots of mistakes. Politicians are not perfect. Bureaucracy is pretty tough, but not as tough as the Italian one. Um, uh, so you're a refugee from Italian bureaucracy. Yes, I am. <laughs> you know, I was just filming there, and I can understand that. I, I went into a museum, and uh, before they gave me permission, I went downstairs and had to sign a bunch of papers. They had a three-ring notebook with all of their We're on Strike posters and they had like eight different kinds of strike, but they just had them saved for next time they were going on strike. They were in a three-ring binder, and they just roll their eyes every time they have to deal with their own bureaucracy. I can understand how that might be a frustration, yes. in spite of all the beautiful things in Italy. Tricia, you moved from Scotland to Italy. You're moving into the storm. Why did you do that? Well, I'm half Italian, mm-hmm. and my life just kind of took me that way, and I found a ruin, and I restored it, and... I love the quality of life in Italy. It's a different quality of life than I had in England or in Scotland. The bureaucracy is the most frustrating thing living mm-hmm. in Italy, I have to say. But still the quality of life yes. trumps and that the for weather. You. And, and the, the part weather. of Italy where I live, which is Le Marche, is so sunny. It's like sunny Scotland. Sunny. It's similar countryside. Oh, nice. Yeah. Beautiful. When you look at all of this movement in Europe, Both of you, do you see any trends from where are people wanting to go, where are people wanting to leave, Mm. and why? At the moment, people are leaving in their droves because of the situation, the crisis financially. Leaving where? Uh, All of the European, Spain and France and Italy are the three main sort of holiday places for other Europeans to have holiday homes. Right. And the market, you just look on the internet, there's so much for sale. So they went down there because they're these Mediterranean paradises, but now the economy is worse in the Mediterranean and the housing market is depressed because nobody wants to buy these houses. Very. Well, they have homes perhaps in the north with mortgages right. and they've bought these places often with another mortgage and suddenly with this situation financially in the world, they're just can't afford. Is there a movement to the north because of the economic crisis? That's what I what I would think. For example, most of the people I know with degrees and even PhDs, they tend to go to UK or to Finland, Sweden, those kind of countries. Okay, where the economy might be more um, promising from an employment point of view? Yes, I mean, what do you do? Tough to get a job in Spain or Greece. Exactly. Well, in Spain especially, you know, that we have the highest rate in Europe of unemployment. What kind of bureaucratic headaches are there when you move, say, from Italy to Spain? Well, I have to say that somehow the European community is something like a, a, a very young boy or very young girl, so very new. Everything is new, but things somehow they are improving. So for me, it was very easy because the only thing that I have to do um, being a European citizen is to say to my country, you know, I'm not living here anymore. And to in order to be able to get a, a resident permit in Spain, you just have to 
bring your contract. You know, you, I signed a contract for a flat because I don't own a flat where I live in. And you, you bring it in the Registro Civil and they give you a paper. And with that paper, you can claim any kind of document. So governments are happy that people are moving around and it's a healthy I, I, thing? I don't know if, if they're happy, but they are providing services. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about living as a borderless European, and we're joined by Susanna Perrucchini, an Italian who's decided to live in Madrid, and Trisha Brady, who's a Scottish woman who's decided to live in Italy. Susanna, when you think of Europe and how Europe is dealing with the challenges confronting it, because you've, you've both lived in different countries and you've got a lot of friends that are quite international, is it a feeling of all for one and one for all, or is it every country for themselves? And, and let's just uh, somehow manage on our own and to heck with the rest of them. Well, you know, being on your own is exactly the opposite idea that the European community has. So it would be, for me, going backward instead of going forward. So I, despite everything, despite the crisis, despite everything else, I truly believe this is a good idea. So many people, they're starting to say to me, oh, it would be nice to cut off those poor countries. Right. You know, let's face it, Italy is not a poor country, but somehow we're doing so badly. And Spain just uh, joined the European community in 1986. They were doing so well, and all of a sudden, boom, they went into the pit. So I truly believe that we have to hang on it because it's good, because our sons can have benefits, more benefits than bad things from the European community, but we have to be patient and hold on to it. We really need to believe that Europe was not a failure. I'd like to close just with this whole sort of psychological who am I idea about <laughs> living in Europe. Uh, Tricia, you're Scottish, you're Italian, you're living with a bunch of Italian uh, rural communities, small-town Italian people and so on. What is your and, and what are your neighbors' outlooks? Are you uh, people from the Marquet? Are you Italians? Are you Europeans? How do you identify yourself when you're moving all over the place like this? I've always felt like a European. I've never really, I'm not for Scottish nationalism. I've, I've got this Scottish accent, deep accent, but I have never, ever been for it. I, and when you go into the market and you're waiting in line for uh, the produce with people who live on farms around you who have never been out of Italy, how do they see themselves? Um, I think they don't actually see themselves any particular way because they haven't traveled, so they don't have that perspective. So they would be a little more regional. Yes, and they laugh. You know, when I say I'm off to Naples tomorrow, they burst out laughing and say, Naples tomorrow. <laughs> Very nice, you know. They probably haven't it's been there once in They haven't lifetime. been to the local village. <laughs> Susanna, how do you see yourself? Uh, well, you know, Rick, it's important to keep in mind that no matter how far I will go, and that's something that I started to think about it many years ago, no matter how many years I, I can spend in a country, can be Spain, can be Finland, I will always be Italian. And it's something that it's the core of you. Mm -hmm. So it's like you. I mean, you grew up in this little town, Edmonds. You can be all over, but you will be the old Rick, the, the, the same person. So I'm just growing as a person. I'm trying to embrace more things, but I will be Italian till I die, if I like it or not. So I become more Italian every time that I spend more time in any foreign country. But at the same time, I embrace things from other countries. I love ham, jamon. I, I can cook croquetas, but I'm still and always be Italian. Very interesting. Susanna Perrucchini, Trisha Brady, what a wonderful time of opportunity you live in to be in Europe, to be able to be free to, to call home any country you like and to still be whatever you like, Scottish, European, Italian, Spanish. Thanks a lot and best wishes. Thank you very Thank much. Bye-bye. <laughs>because I travel so much of the year, I find it really comforting to come home to the town I was raised in. After all these years of globetrotting, I still live right where I grew up, in Edmonds, Washington. It's the place that was sort of the springboard for my 40 years of European travel. Joining me now for a look back on how our travels turned into a career is my original travel buddy from high school, Gene Openshaw. He's been a featured guest on Travel with Rick Steves a few times in the past, and Gene will be joining us on the show from time to time now with some fun features on European art, history, and culture in the months to come. Right now, let's look back on how we started out, vagabonding our way across Europe on a shoestring right out of high school. Okay, let's go back. Let's go back to the year 1973. Richard Nixon was facing Watergate. The world was facing an oil crisis, and two teenage boys from the suburbs of Seattle were heading off to Europe on their first trip, the first time overseas, away from their parents, the first taste of high culture. 
That was more than 40 years ago, and that was me and Gene Openshaw, our first trip to Europe on our own. I'm joined by Gene Openshaw now. He was my travel partner back in 73, and he's been working with me for the last 40 years. Boy, it makes me feel a little bit old, but uh, we're still young at heart. <laughs> and Gene's the co-author of several of my guidebooks. Gene, how did a couple of kids like us, with no cultural background, grow up to be talking about art and history now on the radio? Well, let me take you back to our first trip. I brought something here. Trump oh. hoping to kind of spark some memories that of what one day's was budget like right back there. then. Yeah. <laughs> few coins from the pre-Euro days. Here, look. Okay, we're talking 73. So back then, we had a Deutschmark, yeah. we had a Frank, a, a Greek drachma. Here's a lira. And a Norwegian, a, a Danish crown with a hole in it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was a very different world. Europe back then was quite different than travel today. You just think about some of the most basic things that we take for granted, like phone calls. If you wanted to make a phone call, you had to gather a bunch of coins like this. Pop them in. You'd get a whole, all the coins you could gather, pop them in, and you get to talk one minute to your girlfriend <laughs> or your mom and dad. Yeah. The world wasn't globalized. Very few people spoke English. And I really had the sense, I don't know about you, that we were kind of on our own out there, sort of and, the dark and, side of the moon. And it was the Cold War, and that was scary. I remember standing in Berlin next to that wall, and it was scary. Crossing borders, just remember, you know, angry dogs and... Strange people coming at 2 o'clock in the morning to take your passports. And you did not question them. No, no. Yeah, Europe was kind of, uh, yeah, you felt like it was sort of a, a battlefield, a battleground between these two nuclear superpowers. But way back then, I still think there was the seeds of globalization. It was like we were on the edge of a new world. You know, remember this? We're on the Rhine River. We're at that castle in, was it Bacharach? Where you're up on that hill. Yeah. And Beautiful summer over. night. We're out there. And we're surrounded, it's us, we're a couple of teenagers, and we're surrounded by a bunch of other teenagers and their hormones, and we're looking out over the Rhine River, and I did get a sense of globalization, because we all had some things in common. We all had gotten your rail passes. We all had $3 a night for a bunk at the youth hostel there. Yeah, <laughs> yep. We're all fascinated by medieval castles and, and the river cruise uh, up and down the Rhine River. And fascinated by pop culture. That was about the only thing we had in common. That's true. You know? The Beatles, uh, she loves you, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Ah, das ist, das ist gut. Right. You know? Or talking about Hollywood movies. Coca-Cola, everybody wanted a Coke. Everybody wanted a Coke. Right. That's where I thought we really connected with the Europe that was coming of age and would become the globalized world. Well, this was, yeah, this was a time when people were traveling and connecting, and we were first world travelers, so we, we hung out with other first world travelers. When we did go to Bulgaria... We'd hang out with people from Cuba and Angola and Russia because that was a, a parallel world. But there in Germany on the Rhine, it was people from Australia, from France, from Canada, from the United States. We learned a lot about culture, even though I remember just going to the museums because my mom said it would be a crime not to. But stepping into those museums, we did gain an appreciation of high culture. Mona Lisa, that knocked my socks off. Stepping into St. Mark's Square in Venice. Oh, oh man. Stepping the into the greatest cathedral in Europe, St. Peter's Basilica. Oh, man, yeah. The, the Baroque, the gold leaf, the, the statues. You know, we didn't, become, wow. we didn't probe too deeply into it, but we did have a respect for what people did centuries ago for, for their state, for their religion, for their community. There was a lot of passion and a lot of, a lot of uh, energy put into civilization back then. And when we came back, we weren't art scholars by any means, nor are we now. But we do at least have a knowledge and understanding of what's out there. But what I think, you know, we learned a lot from the museums and the art. But what really taught me the most, I think, was just the fact that Europe was so different then. It was kind of jarring when we went there. It kind of opened our eyes. You know, we're in Amsterdam and, and you're seeing these hippies and freaks and smoking <laughs> pot and the girls on Z Dyke Street and the sex trade. And, and for a couple of teenage boys, that was kind of a... You're kind of trying to figure it all out. We were like two little Reese's monkeys hu huddling together and <laughs> hugging each other, trying not to, not, not to get into too much trouble. See no evil, hear no evil. <laughs> but when we flew home, yeah. the world was our playground. Yeah. Think about all of it. I remember looking back on my journal from that trip. There were so many um, just mistakes that turned into great experiences. <laughs> What's one of the mistakes that you remember? Uh, well... One event that stands out and probably just sums up the whole trip for me. Remember, we tried to save money by not getting a hotel or a hostel, but we tried to sleep free on an empty train car that was parked 
oh, in yeah. a train that yard. That was in Yugoslavia, wasn't it? Yes. And this train looked like it hadn't moved for decades. It was just <laughs> sitting there. I thought moss was growing on its wheels. So we, both you and I looked at each other like, we just struck it rich. You know, <laughs> hey, we could go into there, slip into there. Nobody's <laughs> looking. Nobody cares. Pull out all the chairs. That was when the chairs that faced each other pulled out and made a big bed. So you had a double bed. <laughs> we, we rolled out our sleeping bag. We didn't even bother with our tube tent. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, we were kings. We were laying there. It felt so good for about like three hours. And what, what made it feel even better, it was absolutely free. It was absolutely free. And we were so smart. But then in the middle of the night, wham, <laughs> the train jerks to a start. And we jerk wide awake, and we're going, oh, Both of us are looking out the window like, a, what the heck? And we didn't know where we're going. Well, Yugoslavia was scary enough. Suddenly, we're hurtling through the night on a train that we don't have a ticket for, and we didn't know where the heck we were going. And I remember we felt like a couple of rudely awakened um, butterflies coming out of their cocoons, and we dragged all of our sleeping bags with us, standing at the door, wondering, should we jump out at this suburban station, or should we stay in the train and go to Bucharest or something? <laughs> so we decided to leap, and we landed in this little, dark, dingy suburban station outside of Belgrade. Yep. And we, then a man came over with a... We leaped out of the moving train, didn't we? Yes, and we landed just splat right on the we, concrete We, we could platform. have hit a pillar and bounced back onto the, uh, the train, and then there'd be no more trips. <laughs> but then I remember this. We kind of were checked everything. My main concern was, did we get all of our stuff off the train with us? And then were we in one piece? And this man walks over with a lantern. Actually, it was like a lantern. <laughs> yeah. And he'd say, who are these two crackpots? And then he, he took us in like a, a loving scoutmaster. He gave us a little place to sleep, and it we was, were on our way. It, it seemed like the perfect metaphor of a European with a lantern pointing <laughs> us the way to our future. Two kids opening up to the rest of the world. It was a bit of a rude awakening, but it was probably a healthy one for a couple of young kids from the suburbs. I'm sure thankful for that trip. That was the best trip ever, Gene. And what's great in my mind is that those kind of wide-eyed wonderland adventures that we had when we were 18 years old so many decades ago, kids are having them today, too. It's still possible, and that's the magic of travel. Go for it, guys. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Our website team includes Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find more in the radio section of ricksteves.com, and we'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.